Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 1965, Murray the K, a legendary New York DJ, hosted a historic concert taped at the Brooklyn Fox Theater with many of the greatest soul, rock, and R&B artists of the 20th century. And decades before MTV, Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records, created fantastic videos with his stellar recording artists. Those imaginative videos and the historic concert are featured in a new PBS show premiering tomorrow on our PBS station, ATL-PBA. We'll hear from producer T.J. Lubinsky about the inclusive and diverse world of music lovers appearing in It's What's Happening, Baby. First, great music from an earlier era as told to young children. Those schools in the United States have faced cuts in funding for music and art programs. Continued research shows that arts education significantly benefits child development, and it's never too early to start. Dr. Anna Gerhardt has written a series called Little Stories of the Great Composers for the Montreal-based publisher The Secret Mountain. She joins us now via Zoom. Anna Gerhardt, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Hello. I'm very glad to be with all of you. What is the recommended age group for your Little Stories of the Great Composers? Um, I would think that they could uh, catch the children's attention from like, I don't know, four or five years old to eight or nine. Parents can read these stories to children and then children who have learned to read recently can follow the stories as well. Exactly. This series introduces children to famous European classical composers, 
by way of a little mouse. What can you tell us about him? So we created the little mouse so that there would be a character uh, common to all the little stories. And finally, this little mouse, who is Minim, has a name uh, that means that it's a little, little, very little mouse, but also it's a musical name because Minim is the duration of a very brief uh, note. And it's a mouse who loves cheese, who is very curious and who likes very much classical music. So um, finally, children can identify themselves with this little character. He loves cheese and music. He's not sure which his family loves more, but he manages to bring both into the stories. What about the stories themselves? How did you come up with the narratives? For the first story, the one about Mozart, the one that's named, uh, that's my piano, sir, I reading the letters of uh, Mozart's father. There is one letter where he writes to a friend in Salzburg of the first travel that Leopold, the, uh, Mozart's father, did with all the family because uh, little Wolfgang had a sister uh, who was five years older than him, who was a very good pianist also. So uh, Leopold thought that he had two. Uh, he had two very extraordinary children and that he had to promote them. So when um, little Wolfgang was six, uh, they traveled to Vienna, which was not far from Salzburg. It was the first stop. And he wrote to the friend that uh, when they arrived in Vienna, little Wolfgang attracted the attention of, uh, how do you call the the customs uh, agent? with his little violin and that he played and that the customs agent was uh, enchanted or very happy with little Wolfgang. So that's when I had the idea to set uh, up the story just when they are uh, arriving because they did the travel by boat on, on the Danube river. And so I imagine what it would have been like to, to hear the little Wolfram playing in that day when they arrived in the harbor of Vienna. He's really at the harbor waiting for the ship to empty all of the leftovers from people's meals. And he sees this enormous box, a crate that turns out to be a piano. <laughs> exactly. I imagine the uh, anecdote where uh, Minim uh, is searching for cheese. He's very hungry. So he doesn't see that carriers or who, are, who are carrying this enormous box. And he, he gets on the way. And so the box falls and it turns out that it is a piano. And uh, so that's a surprise because you're far from imagining that a piano can be in that box and, <laughs> <laughs> and that is what catches the people's attention and Minim's attention to the boy who arrives uh, because he hears the piano when it falls and he's preoccupied with his piano. And the way you situate Mozart and his sister in this story, they performed, I guess, what might be the first 18th century 
flash mob <laughs> concert or exactly. pop-up concert. Exactly. Uh, totally. No, because uh, it's something that we looked with the edi editor of these books with Roland was that to, to have music, classical music out of the classical concert halls that normally everybody is used to listening to the, this music in the concert halls. The idea is that even if you listen to it in the street, it, um, it is very attractive and it c catches your attention. And yes. like you say, it's the idea of the, of the flash mob. <laughs> Now, with the second book in this series, Some Creatures Have All the Luck, I was surprised to read that the Tooth Fairy is actually a mouse. I did not know that. <laughs> How does this story unfold? Yes, in the Spanish and French and Italian, I mean, in the Latin cultures, it is a mouse who brings a, a little coin to the children who have lost uh, a tooth and so uh, it's Minim who has to visit some uh, children on that evening and he's very uh, a little angry because it's really a very very cold evening and he doesn't want to get out and to, to face the cold to go visit the children and give them the coins but then well he he does it because it's his duty and he arrives in this uh, strange strange building that is uh, the orphanage where um, Vivaldi was a teacher and a composer. Um, there, because it's a, a, an orphanage uh, where there are little girls, it's for girls and women, and it's, the little girls are already asleep, asleep but the uh, young women are rehearsing. And so um, Minim uh, goes to give uh, the, the coin or li leave the coin in uh, Ambrosina's bed, which is the girl who has lost uh, her tooth and is on the list of uh, Minim. But at the same time, there is a rehearsal uh, taking place and um, there's an a little adventure because there is a cat who is waiting for Minim, who has just left the coin in Ambrosina. And at one moment, it seems that the cat will eat the little poor little Minim. But then the cat goes away when he listens to the rehearsal starting because it turns out that he's a cat that is also very... Who, who loves classical music very much, as much as Minim. So another story of music taming the savage beast. Exactly. <laughs> totally. That's, that's right. So this story is set in Venice, where Vivaldi lived and worked, and that orphanage really did exist, and he really did teach music and conducted a fine orchestra with the older girls there. Exactly. It, uh, and it became a very, very renowned uh, orchestra and even um, the kings and everybody who could afford a, a trip to travel to Venice went there to listen to this, uh, this orchestra of orphans playing with the maestro, with uh, Antonio Vivaldi. I was struck by 
the vocabulary you use in the stories, in the Vivaldi story with Minim, some creatures have all the luck. You use the words labyrinth and veritable. Is it your intention to have parents explain these words or prompt children to look up the meanings of the words? <laughs> uh, yes, I always think that that uh, even if there is some vocab vocabulary or some ideas that are a little difficult for, for children, I think it's always best to be a little above the level of the children and not below the level. No, I think it's always good that they have to make a little effort or ask their parents or um, search it uh, for themselves because I think it's um, children always like to be a little above uh, what they can understand. No, if, if it's uh, too easy, I think that they lose the interesting um, quickly. So it has to be a little challenging, I think. Yeah, and this is how they develop vocabulary. Exactly. Please tell us about the illustrations. The illustrations are really wonderful. It's a Canadian illustrator, Marie Lafrance. As I sent her the text of the, the story, she imagined the scenes. And she um, was based on uh, pictures of the, of the time where she, uh, when, when the stories take place. So they try to be at the same time very, to um, attract the imagination of the children, but also to respect the, the period when, they, when, when these stories take place. There's a recording which accompanies the stories as well by a very renowned ensemble. Exactly. It's, a, it's really a privilege to have the I Musici ensemble to, to have played the music for these, for these little stories because they are excellent musicians and the result is really wonderful when you listen to the, to the story and, uh, and the classical music played by the Musici. Whose idea was that? It was the editor's idea to, to have uh, the music recorded for these stories. I had thought at first that it would be easier to buy the, um, the rights of uh, uh, the music, uh, I don't know how you call it in, in English, uh, to some uh, discography, <laughs> um, I don't know, company no? <laughs> who, who could sell us the rights. But it was so much more... Uh, I don't know, uh, interesting and, and, and enriching, or you, I don't know how you call it, to, to have the experience with the musicians who were um, playing this music for us. And it made the, really the, the CDs and the result, uh, I think that very, uh, very endearing. <laughs> so the book comes with a CD and is there also a downloadable version exactly because like uh, now many computers don't have anymore the the cd player and uh, now they, they can download it but for parents who are still uh, or, or grandparents <laughs> who are not so modern and who want to have the cd they can have it also on the cd and so on the cd they can the children can at the same time listen to the story which is been narrated by, by 
in, in French and in English by very, very good actors and narrators. And they listen at the same time to the, to the music, which is really very, very beautiful. Anna, do you know how many books there will be in this series? For the time being, there will be six little stories. Uh, now there are, will be three. One, it, it's for the 1st of March, the 2nd, 1st of April, and the 3rd is the 1st of May. And then I think that the three following ones are uh, coming out in the, in the end of the year. Yeah, so the third story will be about Tchaikovsky. Do you know who the other composers, the last three will be? Yes, there is Schubert, and then oh. there is Haydn, and there is Paganini. Very nice. Well, it's been a delight talking with you, and I thank you. Thank you very much for this time, and I hope that the children will really like the, the stories and that parents will think it, it's interesting to, to buy it for the children. Author and educator Dr. Anna Gerhardt, her new series of children's books is Little Stories of Great Composers. The books come with recorded music, too. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. It's what's happening, baby. Premieres on PBS stations, including our own ATL PBA, on Saturday, March 6th. The program features live, onstage performances by some of the greatest soul, rock, and R&B artists of the 20th century, including Ray Charles, The Temptations, Dionne Warwick, and more. The program aired originally on CBS TV in 1965, and it has not been seen since. It's What's Happening, Baby, is presented by veteran public television producer T.J. Lubinsky, who joins us now via Zoom. T.J., welcome to City Lights. Lois, it is so great to be with you. I just need some sweet tea, and everything is, is absolutely perfect in life. <laughs> well, I must say that it is so exciting to actually look at this who's who of rock in the 20th century. It's like rock royalty on this program. The show 
originally aired in 1965 and has not been seen since. How are you able to bring it to PBS now? Well, it started for me because I'm a, I'm an absolute nut. I mean, a crazy aficionado nut of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And as soon as I heard Smokey's music the first time, it was like I had arrived. I had, I had lived. I, I knew this was this was my music for my entire life. And so I would do anything I could get. I would do anything I could do to find footage of these guys. And somehow I got a hold of a VHS tape, which is a bootleg of a bootleg of a bootleg, 14 generations down. But the Miracles were together singing the great love song, Ooh Baby Baby. to have it and I just knew at a young age one day I was going to do something with this library I've been very lucky that way because it's been just about 30 years now through my national public television specials you know those where we started with doo-wop and we went to Motown and soul and R&B and at a young young age I just knew that somehow I'd be able to work with all this great footage and all these great artists and so that's how it really started for me, was wanting to get more footage of the Miracles. And then I found the guy who actually had the tapes in L.A., who turned out to be the son of Murray the K. Because shows like this, they just, they don't exist in their entirety. It's like walking into the theater, any theater, no matter where you're from. It just happened to be the Brooklyn Fox. And he had this amazing two-inch tape, which hadn't been played since 1965 which we had transferred. It was a big deal to get transferred. And on there are The Temptations, Mary Wells, Dionne Warwick. Uh, of course, for Georgia, we have to talk about the great Brad Charles. Yes. And, you know, it was just unbelievable. It was like walking into a piece of history. And I knew right then and there we had to, um, we had to be able to make this available for public television stations everywhere. And I'm so grateful and honored. It's, it's finally going to see the light of day. TJ, who was Murray the K? He was a DJ, not unlike any other DJ of his time. The difference between Murray and other guys was that he came along at a time after the great Alan Freed. Alan Freed, of course, coined the phrase rock and roll. Later came Cousin Brucie, who, of course, is the guy probably most associated these days with oldies. But in between that gap was Murray the K. Kaufman. He had started out in vaudeville, and he cut his teeth on doing all those great shows and all those great theaters and learning his stagecraft. So by the time he started playing the music, and the thing about Murray is there was a no-color line with him. He he didn't didn't matter to him if it was a white group, a black group a Latino group, didn't matter at all, as long as it had the feel of what the kids want. So he started to play his own records without a programmer telling him what to do that just had the feel of what the teens were listening to. And from that, it led to television. And so he did this 
you know, these great concerts that were done at the place called the Brooklyn Fox Theater. And he had the idea, uh, someone had approached him from the government um, at that time, the Office of Economic Development, said, you know, we'd like to reach young kids in urban cities to get back into school. How can we, how can we connect with them? And Murray said, well, there's no better way to connect with young kids than their music. So I'll put together this great list of artists. We'll ask them to be a part of it. And that's kind of how this happened. And then some situations in the middle part of the country, they did, they did not like the fact that it was mostly predominantly R&B music and uh, very political with a bunch of senators who were very upset that the show ever got funded or ever got made. And it was shown. And basically, they said it should never be shown again. So it went into the Library of Congress. And that happened to be the, the tape that was left in this vault in L.A. that everyone forgot about. So he was a visionary, and he was he was a performer, and he was a visionary, Murray, unlike anybody else. He used to dance with the groups. He'd, he'd get up there and do a whole routine with them. He'd change all the outfits. Very stylized guy. Yeah, but, but mainly he was a radio DJ, and radio was a very powerful medium for rock at the time Murray the K was working in New York. On your show, Dionne Warwick talks about Murray the K, and she said that if he played your recording, you were virtually guaranteed a hit. That's how important his signature was for artists. What what I I think um, is so remarkable about this show. It took place in 1965. You mentioned it was at this wonderful uh, Brooklyn Fox Theater. And this was, what, almost two decades before MTV. Yet the feel of the groups, the feel of the show, and the way they are presented is very contemporary. It's visual. And what really blew me away is that this is 1965. The show was in late June. It was two months before the Voting Rights Act was passed. It was less than a year after the Civil Rights Act was passed. And it is such a beautifully diverse audience, as well as the players on stage and on screen. Would you talk about the context of some of these presentations? Well, you know, it's funny because Dionne Warwick, who is a very, very dear friend, she's a close personal friend. And one of the reasons for that is because she recorded, my grandfather had a record label in North New Jersey called Savoy, which was all gospel and jazz. And she had a family group at the time with her sisters and her aunt, her cousins and all that called the Drunk Hard Sisters. So she had great fond memories of those days. So when I came along years later and wanted to bring the music to television, it was only through public television I could be able to do this. She just opened her arms and opened her life and said, whatever you want, I'm there for. And so I always had this joke with Dion that, and it starts the interview that I, I do with her, 
on, on the television show that, you know, I've known you since before I was born because I really did. I really did. And we've known each other for so long and so much respect. And when you see her doing walk on by in front of this audience, it, you know, it's, I'm sorry to have to say this, but for years, people would, would tell me, you could never really know what this is like unless you were there. And I would always say, oh, it's nonsense, because I hear a great song on the radio. Uh, I go out to the record store and I buy it. I feel the same emotions, the same passions, the same feeling about the song as you did. And until I saw this show where Dionne Warwick is on stage and she just starts the beginning of Walk On By and all these kids of, of every flavor of the rainbow are giving her this love back it wasn't scripted it wasn't prompted she says can i sing for you and they all know the chorus to walk on by if you see me walking down the street and i start to cry each time we meet walk on that moment, uh, particularly in New York, where there was a no color line in the theater at that time, which is such a big accomplishment and also big in terms of Murray's vision. It's the most incredible thing. It's like you were, it's like the old TV show. You were there. And that's the theme throughout the show. And then they recorded a lot of the acts, particularly some of the great R&B acts, I think of uh, the, you know, I call them the, the tall, toe-tapping, tantalizing, tempting temptations. And you see them in 1964 doing the way you do the things you do in that theater. Wells doing My Guy, all, all those songs, by the way, written by Smokey Robinson. And you see the great R&B acts, uh, not from Motown, but from a different label, Chuck Jackson, who was just incredible. And then you see Ray Charles, who was the closer to the show and, and such a magic moment when all that comes out. But in between all this, they went out and recorded the groups on the streets of New York, in the streets of primarily places that were Detroit or Malibu but mostly New York and old New York. And they wanted to capture what you thought in your mind about the feeling. It was long before MTV. So on the street corners, you see Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes, Latino group, singing Be My Baby as they're playing stickball in the middle of the street, which is what you would have done in New York at that Wait, time. Wait, wasn't this in Little Italy? We think so. We're not sure, because some of those locations we really don't know.
Oh, wow. Now, the other thing that blew me away was early in the show, Nowhere to Run. Oh, Martha, yeah. In a Ford plant. I mean, Mustangs, the car, uh, are being assembled, and the singers are riding in a Mustang as it goes along the assembly line. Who conceived this, TJ? This was, and you know, as I say, I'm really a hardcore Motown fan. So if you look at Barry Gordy, Mr. Gordy's vision for Motown, he always saw it as an assembly line, exactly as you see in that picture, where, okay, maybe in an assembly line, there'd be a car. Well, in this case, the metaphor would be, there'd be the background musicians, and then they'd put the tires on, and that might be the background singers, and then they put the hood on and the steering column, and that would be the lead singer in the background group. And so sales, marketing, everything that that he built, his vision for the sound of young America, that was a metaphor of what Barry was doing with his music at that time. And so to see that, to see his vision and really what it is visualized in that way, and of course they're in Detroit, and you know, I was talking to Martha about another dear friend for many years, and she... (laughs) Martha and the Vandellas, right? Yes, and yes, and she starts laughing. She says, "All I could tell you is, we were really worried we we're going to fall off that car, <laughs> and we just we thought if we could just make it to the car without slipping and falling on the water and the paint and everything else, and just get into the car, we will." And then they got into the car, and it started jerking all around the car itself on the hydraulics, and she was doing all she could just just to keep a straight face. And you see that in their face; they're so happy, they're smiling. The world is a a new place for them. They're in their prime. And she had just come off a string of hits, things like Heat Wave, Quicksand. And then you get into Dancing in the Street, which, of course, is a great anthem. And then you get into this song, Nowhere to Run. And it's the energy is unbelievable, like anything I've ever seen. Public television producer T.J. Lubinsky. We'll hear more about the music special, It's What's Happening, Baby. After a short break, you're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the producer, T.J. Lubinsky. We're discussing the wonderful 1965 music special, It's What's Happening, Baby. The show will air on our PBS station, PBA, tomorrow evening. Here, T.J. shares an interesting story about the drifters, singing Up on the Roof in the special. See, the Drifters started in the 40s, and then the original group was basically, the 40s and 50s were Clyde McFadder. They were fired by their manager, who saw Benny King and Charlie Thomas and the other guys and said, I'm going to bring you guys, and you're going to be the Drifters from now on. And of course, Benny King had those hits like There Goes My Baby, This Magic Moment, on and on and on and on. Benny King has a super major hit on his own called Stand By Me, the great anthem, and they have to get a replacement. The replacement is a guy named Rudy Lewis, who sings those songs like Some Kind of Wonderful on Broadway and the original version of Up on the Roof. Rudy then has a tragic, tragic, tragic death, just an awful situation. Um, He died by his own hand, and it was just a real sad story. So they bring Johnny Moore in, 
who was from the original Drifters, to sing in his place. And what you're seeing on that roof is the original backing track of the original record. They take out Rudy's voice and they let Johnny sing live. And just like you'd see in NYPD Blue, where Jimmy Smith's character kept pigeons on the roof and so many other people did, that was li- that's what life was like for a certain part of the city. And to see these guys up on the roof uh, is just a magical moment. And to see Johnny Moore sing it so humbly and so honestly in memory of Rudy Lewis, who had just died the year before, it's, it's just a beautiful piece. I climbed way up to the top of the stairs And all my cares just drift right into space On the roof is peaceful as can be And there the world below can bother me Let me tell you now when I come I go up where the air is fresh and sweet on the roof. I get away from the hustling crowd and all that rat race noise down in the street. And then this quick cut to Diana Ross with her arm going up in the air singing, Stop! In the name of love. Oh, wow. It's a thrilling moment. Stop! In the name of love Before you break my heart Stop! In the And, and, but you know, I'll tell you, Lois, it was such an amazing moment to have the Supremes together with Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, Diana Ross. And in the show that you'll see on PBA is what you will see, this incredible performance of the Supremes being very natural. They weren't in the gowns. They were dressed down. They were themselves naturally. And the sad part is I interviewed Mary, again, another friend, talking about this show and she talked about the memory she had what it meant to her and all these things she was going to do for the future she had so many things she was going to record a new album she had a new book she was going to do a new reality show she everything the world was her oyster and she died the following week and it was one of the saddest things i've ever experienced because she was so full of life and this is her last interview that you, that you'll see on wpba and you dedicate the program to her memory. Wonderful lady. Wonderful lady. Just loved her. Loved her so much and uh, tough. I mean, I, in all these years of doing these shows, you expect that artists are going to pass on. That's part of the reason I do the shows is to give the artist big chance in the spotlight one more time and to give the audience a time when they weren't ravaged by cancer or, or, or health problems or, or economic problems or the world. You want to take them back to when their life was just starting out and it was the same way for Mary but I guess just because I had spent so much time with her in this taping of the interview for this show it was a real shock when we lost her so fast and she had hosted many shows for me I really 
she was really a, a superstar, a superstar. And I'm, I'm, sadly, she will never see that reunion we always hope for with the Supremes back together again with her and I'm, Diana Ross. I know. You have some of the British invasion represented, Peter Noon, Herman's Hermits. Those are fun. And, and I wonder if that was Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. I wonder if that introduced the word bloke to American <laughs> popular culture, to, to teenagers anyway at the time. Well, you know, the funny thing about Peter is he's this amazing performer, and I didn't truly appreciate how amazing until we had him on one of the great live concerts that we, we do for public television. And he really takes the part on of what he's singing. And he was so incredible. On the streets of New York, it's exactly how you visualize that song. Now, that was Murray who said, listen, this is what we're going to do outside the Ed Sullivan Theater, and you're going to sing to this girl, but there's going to be all these other girls. And by that time, his hits were already over in England, and this is where he just broke America, and it was this whole new world for him. And to see him so dedicated to the lyrics of that song and, and using his cuteness in that way, you know, he would get very humble and he put his finger on his lip and he knew exactly how to, how to, how to work his good looks <laughs> and his charm. And, uh, and very, very intelligent guy and, and so amazing to see, to see that part of history too. I never appreciated it until I saw him on a concert that we did where he started singing songs like um, I'm Henry VIII, I Am, which I always thought was a silly song. But when you see 3,000 people in a theater for public television just going back and forth and, and singing that and waving their arms, you get a new appreciation for what his talent was. So, yeah, great bulk. <laughs> you have the Righteous Brothers on this show, too. When I first did my very first national show, which was called Doo-Wop 50, and then there was Doo-Wop 51 and Rock Rhythm and Doo-Wop and all these other versions, I kept begging them to be on the show, begging them uh, mercilessly. Like I would find out where uh, Bill and Bobby would hang out and have dinner, and I have, you know, I'd have the waiter go up to them or where they got their hair cut, and I'd have the hairdresser say, you know, there's this guy who really wants you to be on a TV show. And <laughs> finally... We got them for a show, and it was so amazing. But when you look back and how soulful and how real Bill Medley sings that song uh, that we all feel, you know, whether it was from seeing it in Top Gun or whether it was experiencing the first time in Bobby Hatfield, the way he comes in, these two guys are real R&B performers. And again, it goes to show how this show crosses that color line. It didn't matter that they were white or blue-eyed soul, whatever you want to call them. They were just righteous, brother, which, of course, is how they got the name. Hmm. Murray the K could dance, I mean, really well. And you see it when he joins little Anthony in the Imperials, whose tradition is is just straight out of the finest tap legacy, I think. Of course, they add so much acrobatics to it, but you really see kind of the evolution of American popular entertainment in their work. Well, you know, you, what you've got there essentially is the Nicholas Brothers, who were yes. great, as, as you may remember, just a tremendous great dancing 
group that were phenomenal at what they used to call at that time, as Anthony calls it, foot-foot, which was just the way they would move their feet. Now, Anthony couldn't exactly go up the wall like those guys would do, but they emulated those guys with love and respect. And what's funny about that, when you see the rubber legs and the splits and the amazing moves that they do, that scared the heck out of the Temptations, because I'm, I'm talking to Otis Williams, yes. uh, another another friend, and he says, listen, what I can tell you about that show is we saw little Anthony and the Imperials, and we knew we had to step our, our game up because we were afraid of them. And little Anthony, when you talk to him in 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 the live interview portions of the show, he says, that's amazing because we, we, you know, we were like watching our steps for those guys. And such a, a fun, amazing thing. But again, Murray, the way he would dance with the groups and be a part of that whole vaudevillian thing. And that's where it started for him. It was all vaudeville. And he brings that into everything he does. That's what makes him different than a DJ. He was a performer. Yeah. It's hard to choose a favorite moment. But I just loved I Can't Help Myself with little children, sugar pie, honey bun. They're all singing to little kids. And there's this adorable little girl dressed in her Sunday best, trying to snap her fingers with white gloves on. She manages to pull it <laughs> off. But tell, tell us again, I was looking at this extraordinary in 1965. Well, you know, in that case, also those little kids, I mean, you got to wonder if they were eight or 10 then, how, how old they are now and how many of them are still with us. But what's so funny is you have to, you know, I mean, you look at the dance of the day, you see them doing, you know, a great dance called the jerk, which yes. was something we all did. Even if it was the monkey, we did the jerk to it. And um, <laughs> it's so great to see these kids. That was the hot song of the day. That was right on the charts in 1965. It burst out for the tops. And to see the great Levi Stubbs and Lawrence and Obie and Duke shepherd on these little kids. And, and it's just a real wonderful interpretation uh, what life is all about and, and just having a good time and enjoying our time together through the music. That was amazing. of amazing moments it's hard to pick what if i had to pick one of course for me it would be the miracles when Smokey takes his bow tie off and leans down real low and the miracles are doing their steps behind him that's powerful stuff to me i have to tell you that in 1965 i was 12 years old and i got a pair of those white go-go boots that 
the girls and the ladies are wearing in that show. And this this was just such an incredible soundtrack to my pre-teenage experience. And because the music is so wonderful and enduring, I think it's great that you can bring it before the public of all ages now and show it in such a special way. You know, it's amazing. I I play Motown a lot for my kids. And when a Motown song comes on, you know, they're always right there with the beat. And then they learn the lyrics and they start to sing along. And that to me is so amazing because my kid, I have three kids and they're, you know, they're young. My my youngest is six. My my second boy is 12. And my daughter is, is 15 going on 16. And the fact that they know these amazing songs and they will dance to them, and most kids will dance to them still. Today, it's a testament to Mr. Gordy's vision. For me in my life, I'm just blessed to be on this path. The radio station stopped playing this music a long time ago. For the most part, you may find one station here and one station there, but they stopped playing our music. And when I say our music, it's the only music I ever listened to. I came along later, but I never listened to anything different you know when i when i goes goes back to the miracles first time i heard a song they did called mickey's monkey it was like uh that's it and then you really got a hold on me and tracks my tears and ooh baby baby and all these things so i've been lucky when when commercial radio said we're done with this stuff uh you've aged out of our demographic you're over the age of 50 or 55 or whatever it is and they took all these songs away how dare they how dare they? And they were doing that earlier on, too. How, how, how do you take someone's history and feelings and emotion and love and, and, you know, you were there with the go-go boots, like maybe the girls were on the beach in Malibu, singing in the water with Gary Lewis and the Playboys or Hullabaloo's or Shindigs or whatever it was. And for me, I was there dancing with my girlfriend, being in love, falling in love, starting a family. And so PBS and public television was my only way to keep this music alive. When everyone else said, forget about it, we're not doing this stuff. And I tried to be a DJ on radio stations. They'd say, you don't want to do this. You're not going to be able to pick your own songs. You're not going to be able to play what your audience wants. You just you just have to go with what we do. It kind of gave me the inspiration to say, well, if I can't do it on commercial TV, and if I can't do it on the radio, then I'll bring it to public television with the promise that as long as people come and support us, every time we do one of these great specials or programs, if it means something, support us, we'll come back and do more. And now three decades later, we're still doing a lot more. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite blessed that way. T.J. Lubinsky. It's what's happening, baby. 
airs on our PBS station, ATL PBA, tomorrow at 8 p.m. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life, Monday at 11 a.m., a conversation with Patricia Holt about her book, Empower a Refugee. Also, the High Museum Curator of Folk and Self-Taught Art, Katie Jettelson, will tell us about an extraordinary gift to the museum of more than a hundred wood-carved sculptures by self-taught artists. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at... L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Have a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.